Tonight I want to speak briefly, I think perhaps, as you know, perhaps it's been promoted as, as a talk on the topic of compassion, or perhaps you've been told that tonight, but, but uh, in any case, that is the case. I will speak briefly on compassion, and in order to do so, with some spiritual power, I would uh, like to begin by I'd like to speak from the Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavad Gita, on the topic of compassion, and I would like to thereby draw some spiritual power from the sacred text in order to speak effectively and hopefully to touch not just your minds but your hearts. These texts, of course, are much more than books. It's sacred text appears in the form of a book made of paper and ink, cardboard, and so forth. But if we take the time to study them and approach them properly, the sacred text, we find that while they appear finite in many respects, they speak to us only about that which is infinite and give us reasoning and very uh, an impetus. Very, they speak in a very compelling way to move us only in that direction, from the finite to the infinite. So it is something like a meeting between the finite and infinite, wherein the infinite takes on a finite form, kind of a meeting between time and eternity, if you will. Srimad Bhagavad Gita, of course, is this famous uh, conversation between Sri Krishna and Arjuna. It's found within Mahabharata, great uh, Indian epic. It's uh, spoken on a battlefield in the, in the Mahabharata, the time who, when everyone who's reading it is sitting on the edge of their seats, wondering what will happen. And the wisdom of Bhagavad Gita is spoken, which is really the essence of Mahabharata. It might be thought that it would be more appropriate if one was to speak about yoga and compassion in relation to yoga to speak from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. But I've chosen to speak from the Bhagavad Gita for a number of reasons rather than Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Um, one of the reasons is because this is Yoga Vedanta and I come from the school of Vedantists, devotional Vedantists. And... Um, after all, the Gita was, although spoken by Sri Krishna to Arjuna, it was compiled by Vyasa, and the Yoga Sutras were compiled by Patanjali, and Patanjali, the legendary Patanjali, was, of course, the disciple of Vyasa. We've gone to Patanjali's guru for insight about yoga, yoga Vedanta. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Sisi Krishna Arjuna ki jai. Srimad Mahaprabhu Gaur Sundar ki jai, Sri Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai, 
Bhut Pramanande. There are three places in the Gita that Krishna speaks about compassion. Once in the fifth chapter, once in the twelfth chapter, and once in the sixth chapter. I'm going to turn to a verse in the sixth chapter, which is perhaps the most prominent way in which he speaks about it. It's a verse that was once quoted by President Clinton, South Africa, when he gave a talk on uh, the um, AIDS crisis in Africa. Well-known verse, even for those who may not be students, per se, of Bhagavad Gita. Sixth chapter is, of course, about dhyan, meditation, yoga. Just before Krishna begins to speak of the, about the theology of the Gita, in text 32, we're nearing the end of the chapter here, Sri Krishna says to his friend and disciple, Arjuna, the warrior, Atmopam yena sarvatra samam pashati Arjuna, shukam vajadi badukam sayogi paramumata. He says, Atmopam yena, that by comparison to one's own self, a yogi being experienced in the world, a high yogi, which is the kind of yogi that's being talked about here, having transcended the world, understands the world. Having understood the world, having experienced the world, he knows, she knows what is the experience of others. So, atma pomyena, by experience, his own self, by his own self-experience, sarvatra samam prashati, Arjuna. Oh, Arjuna, Krishna says, that yogi who, by his own experience, knows what is pleasure and pain, he measures the pleasure and pain of others as if it were his own. Such a yogi is considered to be the best of all. So empathy here is at the heart, it appears, of yoga, empathy and compassion. I want to speak a little bit about that, the role of compassion in yoga. I want to speak also in the, in the context of doing that about different levels of compassion and how these two levels of compassion potentially present a dilemma to the practitioner to the extent that the practitioner may find himself or herself derailed from yoga in the name of compassion and trying to sort out what is compassion in relation to yoga. And then also I want to speak briefly about the Hindu goddess of compassion and finally that which is potentially or arguably the highest expression of compassion in yoga. So here we find, Krishna says, that yoga and compassion the relationship between the two is that those who are accomplished in yoga, indeed, the highest yogi, is filled with compassion. He or she sees, identifies with the pain of others, with the pleasure of others, the joy of others, the sorrow of others, sukha, dukkha, as if it was his own. It's important to note that Krishna is speaking about yogis here. So this is a, an experience of the advanced yogi that is arrived at by spiritual discipline. Why do we up undertake 
spiritual discipline in the first place? There are a number of reasons. There may be positive impetus, there may be negative impetus. Probably a little bit of both. Negative impetus comes largely from the predicament that we find ourselves in the world. A little bit uncomfortable, looking for happiness, and the world seems to offer a carrot that, uh, that, it's, uh, that it's just around the corner. By adding a few more things to our plate, we'll have a full meal. But indeed, what we find is uh, we're constantly getting appetizers, and this results in indigestion, a little bit of dissatisfaction, frustration. We want to be happy, but the world seems to move to be in opposition to us. So negative impetus. I want to I want to be happy, and how happy? I don't want any distress factor to uh, be tied to that. I want enduring happiness, but the very nature of my perception of 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 being and existence is that mine, my existence is threatened. I want to be happy forever, but it appears that uh, I myself may not endure. So, some wise people. They think like this, and they get negative impetus for what is called yoga. To connect, to make a connection, a deeper connection with the world than the connection that we can make through the medium of the senses and mind. We come to the understanding with positive impetus, scriptures like this, saintly persons who speak from them and, and, and uh, live, exemplify such teachings in their living. From these both positive and negative sources of impetus, we, we, we get encouragement. We get a hope that beyond that which we can at present perceive the world has to offer, there's something more. Beyond the superficial understanding of the world gathered through the medium of the mind and the senses, there's more, and that more is, has very much to do with us much more than the objects of the senses do, which are here today, as they say, and gone tomorrow. While they're here today and gone tomorrow, we are told, we are encouraged to think that we are a unit that endures, an enduring unit of not something that is so much to be perceived, but rather a unit of perceiving. Matter is that which is perceived, and we are the perceiver. So we shall look, the yoga instructor tells us, within ourself for happiness, not outside. Indeed, the world of the mind and the senses, the perception of the world gathered from the mind and the senses is very oppressing, very limiting. We live within the world of our mind, so to speak, and that world is informed by information gathered through the senses. The senses touch the world, smell the world, taste the world, see the world, and so forth. And messages are relayed to the central computer of our sense of self, and we get a response, good or bad, happy, sad. And then we live within this world of the mind, if you will, world of duality. Our happies and our sads may be the opposites of another person's. In other words, what may be happy for me may be sad for another. What may be good for me in terms of my perception may be bad for another. So we've 
through this uh, world informed from the mind, by the mind and senses, we create uh, distance from one another. We create a duality. And while we live within the world of our mind, we are never really quite comfortable there. Still, without any higher understanding or knowledge of where to go from there, we tend to insist that everybody else will be happy living within the world of our mind, even though we ourselves are not happy there. Maybe we think if everybody else gets inside, then it will be more comforting because misery loves company. But everyone has their own world of their own mind and they're all trying to get everyone else to go inside over there. So this is not going too far. We're not getting very far in terms of being happy and certainly our capacity to be compassionate towards others when we ourselves are oppressed by the mind and the dictates of the senses is limited, to say the least. So, Vedanta, the logic of the sacred text, oh, gives us a kind of a harsh look at the world, if you will. It says that, oh, simply tendering to the senses of another, even in the name of compassion and being kind, may be doing more harm than good. It's possible. If we are to do good for a person, we have to know what the problem that they're suffering from is. If, for example, a mother gives her infant daughter to her eldest son and says, hold her, I've got something to do. And the child is crying. That young man doesn't know what to do. has no experience, wants to stop the baby from crying, so he gives her uh, her bottle. But she's crying, unbeknownst to him, because she has indigestion, air in her stomach. So he wants to do a good thing. He doesn't know what the problem really is. So Vedanta tells us, oh, that's, that's a little knowledge is useful. If we want to love, if we want to show real compassion, it should arise out of a platform of knowledge. Compassion arising out of ignorance, that um, is perhaps the shadow only of the substance of real compassion. To save the dress of a drowning person, that will not be very helpful. So when we think like this, when we hear like this from sacred texts and teachers and so forth, in one sense it's very encouraging. It's a deep uh, way of looking at life beneath the surface. But the problem is, we live on the surface. So when we go to put that into practice, it's a little difficult. We are faced daily with things like political oppression, disease, poverty, famine. These are problems of the world. And they may be personal problems of our own, or we may know people, or we may have a broader idea of life. and and think uh, we all live in one world and we're all of different shades, but we have much more in common than different. And if people are starving in Africa, I should feel concerned about that. In fact, this is certainly an expression of compassion, not perhaps an expression of compassion in and of itself that is based on the kind of deeper understanding I was talking about, about the nature of, for example, hunger. Hunger is a problem. We might want to help hungry people, I think it's a good idea. But how will we stop hunger? By feeding people? 
Will that stop hunger? You fed yourself. We come from an affluent country. Most of us have eaten today at least once. By, probably by the end of this talk, you'll be hungry. It doesn't matter how many times we eat. It won't end hunger. It doesn't mean we shouldn't feel pain if, if people are hungry, especially if we have. I mean, if we have a full belly. But feeding will not feeding hunger will not solve the hunger problem. It's a deeper problem. It's a problem of consciousness. It's a problem of identification. It's a problem of the atma, the self, identifying with matter, identifying with an African mind, African senses, or American mind, American senses, and the perception of the world that these uh, this identification affords. Again, seeing the world through the filter of my mind and senses. Coming out from that small picture, however big that picture might get, and it gets bigger for some people than others, obviously. Some people don't care about the fact that other people are hungry. Some of us do. But however big that picture gets, if it doesn't take us, move us in the direction of going beyond the limits of humanity, if you will, the world of the mind and the senses, it falls short of bringing us to the heart of real compassion. But what are we to do? As I said, here Krishna is speaking about the highest yogi, and we are hardly yogis in this sense. Indeed, one who truly practices yoga will think like that, however adept they may appear to be to others. The real subject matter of yoga is such that those who are truly involved will always feel themselves to be students, students of that subject forever. So what to do? We may be inspired to practice yoga, and by yoga I mean spiritual life, to go beneath the surface, the surface view of the world, and go to the real nature of being, stand on the ground of being, so firm there, and so whole there that we really are in a position to care about others deeply. And we can affect the lives of others in the deepest possible way by just by our presence, just by our practice, by our samadhi. We can affect the lives of others in the deepest way. We can, we can, we can be involved directly in disentangling them from the bonds of karma and the oppression of the mind and the senses that the karmic involvement is really all about. Such an encouraging idea to go there. If we want to be a good person, we want to do good for others, we want to be a generous person, yoga offers a, a challenge to us. How generous do you want to be? And how to go there then? what you will have to do, what kind of sacrifice you will have to make, you will find that the teachings implore us along these lines. It is you who are to be sacrificed, madam. You. <laughs> you shall be on the altar. Your sense of self, gathered from the mind and the senses, your sense that you're an American, an African, a woman, a man, a yogi, a Christian, a Buddhist, a Hindu, to transcend all of these things and know what you really are 
as a unit of consciousness with a potential for giving that is unlimited. And yoga presents to us in its highest expression that object of love which we can give to unlimitedly. This is who Krishna is, speaker of the Gita, if we study it carefully. Yogeshwara, master of mysticism. So yoga, what a wonderful idea. But where are we in relation to that? We're living very much on the surface, for the most part. We may be living on the surface for that matter of even a human life, or to speak of a yogic and spiritual life. We may lack in terms of the shadow of compassion. That means to say the shadow of compassion, by, what I mean by that is to be compassionate with regard to people in this world and the human dilemma, the dilemma that human life presents that they think about. What uh, in India is always, always popular and is perhaps today to become a doctor, as it was in America, to help people, not because it's a good paycheck, but to help people, to do good for people. We may be lacking even in this. To that extent, we stand only on the surface of a human life. And then we read something about yoga and think, that's a nice idea. I'll go to the studio and practice. Add that to my portfolio. Then well, how much are we really even involved in yoga? We're hardly involved in human life. Human life gives us the chance to care. That is the difference between human life and all other forms of life. All other forms of life are not bad. They should be cared for. Because in human life, we have the capacity to care. In human life, what happens without any practice at all? Nature wakes up to the fact that it has a soul. That's what Descartes was getting at. Kogita, what did he say? Ergo sum. I can think. The fact that I am. The animals are too. They don't think about it, though. They appear happy to, happier for it. <laughs> because it's a problem to think about who I am, that I am, why I am, why I'm suffering. Who am I? Why am I? Why am I suffering? I don't want to. I want to be happy. You may think, better I'd be a cow. They, just seem, they don't think about all these things. They just give milk and eat grass or the animal of your choice, or plant life, for that matter. But no, no, we're better off having evolved spiritually to this point than we were when we were previously in those species of life. We're better off that we can think about these kind of things. We can think that I am. But we're only as better off as we take advantage of this opportunity and think deeply and take help in thinking deeply. Help is available. Therefore, we worship sacred books like Bhagavad Gita. They're not ordinary texts. They come to humans. They're particularly the, the subject matter for humans. That you may know what is the potential of human life. What it can do for you. How high you can fly. In the sky of possibilities. In human life, we have a sense. Why do we want to fly in the sky? We're not birds. Why do we want to plummet to the depths of the ocean? We're not fish. The reason why we want to do all these things is because in human life we have this, the soul is waking up and it has the sense that all these things are possible for the soul. Only the body is, and mind are limiting it. 
The bird can only fly because it thinks it's a bird. It's a soul also. The fish can only swim because it thinks I'm a fish. That is the influence of karma. Now we are human beings. We have a sense there are more possibilities because the self is more unencumbered by matter. But the delusion of maya, without any practice, you see, just by its birth, what a gift is human life. This sense arises. But how that wealth that you have, uh, it's not real wealth, it's money, let's say. How you spend money, that determines whether you're wealthy or not. You can have money and spend it in a foolish way. Be a rich, poor person. How you spend this human life, that will determine how wealthy you are. Spending it properly, that will bring us the wealth of spiritual life and the possibility of real compassion on the highest level. We should try to understand the value of human life. As I said, it gives us the chance to care, to care. We don't find... Try it. Do you have some pets? You have a couple of dogs in your house? Let them get hungry and then invite them to eat. Put down. Will one say, oh, you go first? <laughs> go ahead. Excuse me. No, this doesn't arise at that stage of life. In human life, it arises. The chance to care. The opportunity to care. Indeed, we find this is what life is about. As much as yoga is about compassion, compassion is about real life. Real life is about yoga. It's about giving, the opportunity to give. And in full giving we find that it, that is the gift. That is the gift itself, to be able to give. And yoga is the science of how to give, actually. How to give in such a way that you're giving comprehensively. You can give yourself in such a way, as I say, that by entering into the trance, entering into samadhi, you can do good for others. You can disentangle them from the karma just by their coming in contact with you. Sounds great. So I'll become a yogi. Put on a robe even. Renounce the world. Because I heard this today, yesterday, and a few other days. I read a few books. I gathered quite a bit of information, in fact. I can even talk to other people about it. And I sound, I can give a compelling talk, even. It's powerful. People, I can see they're smiling, listening. They like it. I'm a big yogi. You can't think like this. <laughs> Many people think like this. But in fact, this is one of the dilemmas I wanted to talk about that the practitioner, practitioner is confronted with. Yoga is a high thing. Perfection of yoga, such a high thing. We should not be discouraged about how far away we really are from that as long as we are honestly treading the path. But if we think that we're close to that, I have to say it. Last month I came here and there was a fellow here who told me he was enlightened. What can I do? I give my pranam to you. <laughs> he was full. Full of what? I don't know. But he had some, he had some ideas. This is not a cheap thing. Very high thing. So just to don the robes and the terminology to get the vocabulary and so forth. And and so, and, and get a, even a following of other people. This is a cheap thing. It's not that easy, but it can be done without even giving fully of yourself.
And when it is done in that way, it causes a hardening of the heart rather than a softening of the heart. And we think, tough karma. That is just their karma. Those people, I have no time for that. I'm doing the higher work. When in the fact, we cannot really affect a change in those people's lives. We cannot really be involved on a, on a spiritual level, invisibly, disentangling them from the bonds of karma. We should try. We should try to move in the direction of this kind of high ideal, but we could, should go under good guidance. We should know where we are on the map. This is a credit card society, credit economy, so we're used to that. I can purchase it even though I don't have the money. Just put it on the card. Enlightenment is not like that. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. But we are predisposed to think like that. We've been conditioned to think that we can, we can, oh, ancient teachings, they take a long time, but we live in the modern world where we can do everything quickly. We can, you ask Ken Wilbur, he can tell you how to do it quickly. Analyze it in so many, so many ways. All this head work is not so useful. He's a good man, but we have to exercise our heart, really. We have to practice. We have to practice. And what kind of practice? Deep practice, steady practice. At least whatever little practice we should do, it should be concentrated, dedicated, one-minded. So we have one side. We want the thing, but we don't really have the purchasing power. We want to be the biggest giver, but we end up being a taker only, all dressed up like a giver. We become a pseudo-yogi. We get a following even. And then what happens? Oh, so many problems come down the road for me and for you. So we should not do like this. That heart becomes hard only. How hard is it? Think about this, that people have come to you for the highest thing and you're giving them only a counterfeit currency. What could be worse? How hard of a heart is that? In the name of yoga and soft-heartedness and compassion, which is the heart of, of yoga, all dressed up, suited and booted, as they say, but hard-hearted, living in the mountaintop, monastery, whatever. Or he or she will fall from there, and it will be inglorious, and so many people will have come and surrounded uh, in, in the name of the highest thing, and they will be disappointed and discouraged. They may go away for a whole lifetime. With some of us have been around the yoga community for 30, 40 years now. So many things we've seen come and go. Shooting stars. Krishna says in Gita, be an honest person. Earlier on, don't be a pseudo-yogi. That is one thing. Now the other side. I said we are faced with a dilemma. We need two sides. This is one side. In the name of pursuing the highest compassion, we become hard-hearted. Other side is this. Practitioners may, may run into this problem. I went, I, 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 I stayed in the ashram, or I uh, adopted serious practices for some time. And then I thought, here I am doing meditation and yoga and all these things, but the world is running out of oil. The economy is going to fold. People are starving in Africa. 
the president should be impeached, pressing the people. He's an, ag an aggressor and a liar. How can I really sit here and meditate, do nam japa, kirtan, like this, in, in my quiet studio, incense burning and turning the world off, and the world is burning. I should be a bodhisattva and just take a vow to save everyone in the world before I'm saved and show real compassion for the people. So I have to, I want to leave my practice. Actually, it's a smaller thing, this practice. The bigger thing is to be involved in this, really, to be an activist, to join, you know, when I was a kid, it was, I thought I would join the Peace Corps or something. So many opportunities now. I should go to Iraq and be a human target or something, you know, to protest these, the, the cruelty of the world and the anomalies of the world and, and be actively involved with the balance, the greater balance of my time in all these things. This is another delusion, potentially. Because, again, what Krishna is speaking about here when he speaks about yoga, he's speaking about a yogi and he's speaking about compassion. He says the highest yogi is full of compassion. He sees the pain and pleasure of others as if it was his own. Remember, he arrived at that authentic vision, not by social activism, but by yoga. He arrived, or she arrived at that vision, by the discipline required for spiritual life, to tame the mind, to tame the senses, to bring the real self out so that you can be what you are and know what others are and know what their predicament is and feel for them substantially with real compassion for the plight of the Atma and at the same time be filled with general compassion for the, the problems of people in the world. But we don't find Jesus. We don't find Shankar. We don't find the Buddha or Sri Chaitanya opening hospitals. I mean, it's a good thing and some people should do that. Human beings should do those kind of things. But if somehow we have the good fortune of getting a glimpse into what the real problem of life is and what the real potential of the human life is and what yoga, how yoga comes to assist us in that, we should spend as much time as we can authentically involved in that kind of spiritual practice and the balance of the time. But we can't be authentically involved because it's a gradual process then we can express a, a compassionate heart in relation to the problems of humanity that we are still involved in. We are still part of, by way of identification, if you will, with matter and a sense of self derived from mind and, and senses. So one, the plight of humanity, the, the anomalies of the world that will never be solved by any solution short of transcendence should be understood for what they are. They should be identified with and tendered to according to our capacity in consideration of our capacity to be involved in, in the extent to which we can be involved in an authentic and comprehensive solution. So we have one person who runs away from the world in the name of yoga and enlightenment and is really a little hard-hearted and, is, and is, is just making a psychological maneuver to cope with the fact that he or she really 
doesn't care that that much. As in, now yoga becomes an excuse not to care. Well, that's their karma, after all. I'm a yogi. I live in the mountains, in the monastery. That is the one side. And the other side, who gets involved with the teachings, but then thinks, these are limited, these teachings. Really, they want to mix it up with the world, is what they want to do. And they're being called by the world more than then they have the capacity to sit and apparently do nothing, but really do something about the problem. And so they leave behind the practices. We may have found ourselves moving in either one of these directions, both of them at different times in the course of our practice. To find a balance, this is important. And a genuine teacher will help us to find balance. He or she will not push us unlimitedly beyond our capacity only to have us have psychological problems in, in the name of in the name of yoga he or she will push us just enough we'll feel the pinch and know it's good for us and move then of our own accord in an authentic way in that direction so much burden lies on the teacher and so much burden lies on the student also <laughs> So this is the dilemma, and this is the two levels of compassion I wanted to talk about. The substance of compassion that deals with disentangling people, all souls for that matter, not only humans, from, the karmic, from karmic bondage by living on that kind of spiritual platform that comes from real spiritual discipline and grace. And then the compassion of, of the shadow of compassion, dealing with the human problems of life. We should find a balance. Once one of my Guru Bhai um, fellow students, Guru brother, said to our master in Calcutta, he said, he was standing on the balcony of, of, the, of the temple in Calcutta, and there, was a, there were two beggars down below, and um, one of them had no hand and cup in the other hand, the other one had one leg and stick and a, a cup in one hand and so forth and they were begging and this is fairly common you can see this in India many of you may have been there and, and seen that and um, so he said to our teacher he said Prabhupada you know he said sometimes I feel compassion for these people I feel sorry for them and he was thinking I shouldn't feel sorry for them that's just their karma that's the teaching right I shouldn't really feel like that if I feel sorry for them, then I'm just really absorbing myself in the, in the karmic problems of other people, and I should be a staunch uh, Vedantist and so forth. And this is how he's thinking. So he said, you know, sometimes, Prabhupada, I, I have to admit I feel sorry for them. And Agurudev said, I only sometimes. So real yoga, real enlightenment, includes feeling genuinely, as this verse has told us from the Gita, for the predicament of others, for the pain of others, the happiness of others. Because who's transcended that, has experienced that in all forms and shapes, in all forms, species of life. It's a long journey through many, many vehicles to arrive at love, real love. The opportunity again, as I said, arises in human life. Now I wanted to conclude my discussion briefly by speaking about, as I mentioned, the Hindu goddess, a deity of, of compassion. Many of you may be familiar with the Buddhist deity of compassion. What is her name? 
Tata? Guan Yin? Okay, another one. So, you may wonder, who's the, who's the Hindu deity of compassion? Is it that flute-playing Krishna? Certainly he has a lot of compassion, no doubt, but he's not the personification of compassion, per se. Is it Shiva? Dressed in ashes? Eyes closed in meditation? Brahma? Busy? With his foreheads? Ganesh, so many deities are there in the, in the Hindu worldview. No, it is not any of them. It's a lady, of course, understandably. We spoke very briefly, based on a question we received here last month, about the principle of the concept and personification of Adi Shakti. So, this is the deity of compassion, Siradha. In Hinduism, she's called Karunamayi. Karuna means compassion, and Mayi means filled, filled with compassion. Karunamayi, Radhe, Radhe. This is the, the other half of Krishna, the better half, we say, of Krishna. It's a very high theological topic, of course, Radha and Krishna, their Leela, what it's about, what are the philosophical underpinnings to that and so forth. Leelas are all charming stories. They have deep meaning and they have an ontological, um, the Leela is ontologically real also. It can be experienced, tasted, participated in for that matter. We haven't got time to go into all those topics. But suffice to say that in our particular tradition, it is a tradition of devotional Vedanta. So while there's a tradition of Vedanta, and Vedanta means, Ved means knowledge, Anta means end. The end of knowledge in devotional Vedanta is devotion. Bhakti is the highest knowledge. Bhakti is not a means to achieve knowledge, at which time bhakti is retired. But bhakti is the highest expression of knowing. When one loves, one knows what to do. And the knowledge that one has in love is essential knowledge. No extra knowledge. No information you're carrying around only. The essential knowledge. To really know is to love. So ours is, a, is an ideal in which love is the end, which has no end. Therefore the practice and the goal, the sadhana and the sadhya, are one. The difference being only that between something like an unripe mango and a ripe mango. To practice loving and to love. And in our practice of love, our ideal is the goddess of compassion, the goddess of love, Siddhartha. Her love for Krishna the object of love, the perfect object of love. We envision Krishna as the perfect object of love, Radha as the perfection of that love. And we told that when Krishna sees the measure in Lila, in divine play, of Radha's love for him, he's dumbfounded by that. It creates an existential crisis for him because he thinks... I am Rasaraj. Rasaraj means the king of love. I love to taste love. That's all I do. And in Radha I see love that she has for me is so intense that I'm purchased by it. You've seen pictures of Krishna dancing with uh, gopis, with Radha. 
Maybe you've seen pictures of Krishna herding cows, playing with his friends, suckling the breasts of his mother. Who are these people? Oh, bhagyam, oh, bhagyam, nandagopavajokasam, yam mitram paramanandam, puna brahma sanatanam. It is emphatically stated throughout all sacred texts of Hinduism. Krishna's Purna Brahma, the Supreme Brahman, Paramananda, the Supreme Ecstasy, Ecstasy personified, Joy personified. If joy, if ecstasy was to personify itself, it would appear like this. This is the vision of the yogis. Like a youth, an adolescent, carefree, in love. There is the Buddha, there is Christ. These are all manifestations of divinity. And Krishna. What is the difference? Buddha means wisdom. Christ exemplifies sacrifice. And Krishna exemplifies love. Beyond calculated sacrifice, self-forgetfulness. Krishna is God, Brahman, forgetting himself by the force of the love of his devotees. The love in bhakti is so high that Brahman becomes purchased and becomes only the son of that devotee, the lover of that devotee, the friend of that devotee. It's a very hard to understand idea, very esoteric. So for us, in our devotional tradition of Vedanta, Yes, we have regard for Krishna. That's true. We chant his name. Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. In our Mahamantra, we chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, 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 Hare Hare. Ram is another name for Krishna. It means the enjoyer. What does Hare mean? Hare means Hari. It's the vocative of Hari. Hari means to steal. Krishna is he who steals away the mind. So these are all names of Krishna. But there's another way of looking at this mantra. Hare is also the vocative of Hara. It means Radha. So in between Krishna and Ram, Hare, 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 Hare. Krishna is interesting to us, but more so because he is of interest to Radha. Most religious traditions teach that we should focus our attention on God, for God is the most worshipable object. But in our kind of funny tradition of devotional Vedanta, if you will, we teach that it's better to focus on the worshipable object of God. In other words, Krishna is Param Brahma, but he's touching the feet of Radha. He's touching the feet of love, touching the feet of the highest bhakti, the highest devotion. Now, both this Radha and Krishna, they came to this world in their leela, we are told, and stories are recorded about that. But Krishna, in contemplating the nature of Radha's love for him and wanting to taste that himself, made an, an encore appearance. And one of the great mystics in our tradition has rendered, given a very nice poem about that appearance of Krishna. He said, Namo Mahabhadanaya Krishna Prema Pradayate Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namne Vodhatvise Namaha he said, his avatar's name is Chaitanya, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, and he is Mahabodhanaya Uttara. He is the very most compassionate descent of divinity, Mahabodhanaya. He is Krishna, imbued with the temperament of Radha. Krishna, trying to taste what it means to love God unlimitedly to feel from that advantage point of the devotee 
Krishna then, filled with the compassion of Radha, distributing himself, Krishna Prima Padayate. This Sri Krishna Chaitanya, he gave this kind of chanting that we do in our tradition. We are the followers of Sri Chaitanya. He appeared about 500 years ago in West Bengal. And once, when he was dancing in the Ratiyatra festival, big festival in Puri, where the Jagannath, deity of Krishna, is taken on chariots through the street, famous festival. That's what the British got the name Jagannath. You may have read it in the dictionary. Mows everything down in its path. Such is the nature of love, actually. Nothing can get in its way. If anything tries to get in its way, that only compels it that much more. Especially the love of a young girl for a young boy. If you try to stop that, <laughs> you'll be mowed down. <laughs> so therefore, Radha's love for Krishna, this is, this is the idea, this is to give us some idea. That, that kind of intensity of love, but for God, we should aspire for. So in the middle of this Rathiyatra festival, singing and dancing, when the festival point, they came to a rest in the festival, he laid in the garden, and the king of Puri, who had become a de his devotee, came before him, dressed in ordinary clothes, not, not in the royal garb. He grabbed his feet and he sang a song. Tavukotamritam taptajivanam kaviviriditam kalmasapaham shravanamangalam srimaratatam he sang a song that was sung by, by Radha in the gopis, in the Leela of Krishna. When Krishna disappeared from their love dance during the full moon night, oh, they, they, they had separation makes the heart grow fonder. Such separation that, that they felt swelled in their hearts and they sang so many songs. This is called Gopi Gita. We were studying Bhagavad Gita. This is another Gita. Gita means song. Gopi Gita. Nineteen beautiful poems. Gopi Gita from Simad Bhagwat. One of these songs the king selected. He selected a number of them. He began singing them. Because he knew this Chaitanya was Krishna in the mood of Radha. If he heard these songs, it would bring him in ecstasy that much more. He sang this song to the gopis and when he came to this one, Sri Chaitanya got up from his trance and he said, Go on singing. Go on singing. Go on singing. So this song tells us about what is arguably the highest expression of compassion in the context of yoga. It says, Tavokotamritam taptajivanam Tavokotamritam The gopis are speaking to Krishna. Radha speaking to Krishna. It says, Tavokotamrita Tava means your. Your kata means talk about you. That's what we're doing tonight. Talking about Krishna. Singing about Krishna. Broadcasting this kind of news. Tavokata Amrita. This kata is Amrit. Amritu means... Amritu means death. Mrityu. Am means Amritya. Amritya means deathless. No death. And it means nectar also. It means talks about you, that deathless nectar. Ordinary talk, talk, talk. That is like a frog in the night, croaking. We talk because we like to hear ourselves talk, mostly. Hmm? We think we have something important to say. So does the frog. Uh, uh. See how, how nice I'm singing. Uh, uh. But what happens when that frog sings at night? Snakes eat frogs, <laughs> you see. 
if you live in the country, you know. They hear the frog and snakes can't see. Don't believe those snake charmers. They can't hear, or they can't, anyway. They, they hear. They hear the croaking. <laughs> they eat the frog. So we're talking, talking, talking. Hmm? About what? Is our talk deathless? Is it, or is it bringing us closer to death? What are we talking about? He said, she said, did you hear about this? What about him? What about her? Don't talk about this. Don't listen to this. Don't waste your time in this. Talk about something meaningful. Meaningful. Oh, you can talk about Upanishads, Gita, all these things. That is meaningful. But more, gopis are saying, more than that, this is not only deathless, but it's nectar. It's the death. It's the nectar of deathlessness. Topics about Krishna are so sweet and charming and absorbing that if you hear, you listen, you find yourself, well, I listened for two hours about that fellow, Krishna and Radha. Oh, the time is up. Mind stopped. And it was easier than sitting and just looking at the wall and trying to stop my mind. Very user-friendly kind of yoga. This harikatha. Talk about Krishna. Tabokotamritam tapta jivanam. Gopis, these milkmaidens, headed by Radha, they said, talk about you, it is deathless. This is deathless nectar. And tapta jivanam. That's all the miseries of life that people are suffering from. This talk has the capacity to eradicate them comprehensively. Tabokotamritam tapta jivanam kavibiriritam kalmasapaham. This is the, the supreme poetry. It eradicates karma. Kalmasapaham, shavanam, mangalam, srimadatatam. Oh, hearing it is wonderful. Shravanam, mangalam. It is all auspicious, beautiful. They said, people who do this, we think, they are the greatest welfare workers in the world. They are showing real compassion on the highest level to the world. When Chaitanya heard this verse, he got up, he said, say more, say more, say more. Are there any questions? Don't be shy. Yes? Marj, you um, mentioned this dichotomy between uh, the feelings of compassion in a mundane sense and the need to be centered, spiritually centered and enlightened to what is the meaning of compassion. Could you bring out some more insights on that? Well, you mentioned, of course, the war, which is certainly, for anyone, I would say, anyone who's conscientious, this war is a great... They're an objector. What? (laughs) (laughs) Anyone who's conscientious is an objector you want to say? Uh, Alarmed and, and feels yeah. like the need to do something. And I mean, and of course, the whole world situation, American situation, it just, it's like you said, the world outside is burning and how can we burn incense and close it out? <laughs> we feel guilty even for the time we take to do that. Yeah, it requires some knowledge, some good guidance. And that the understanding that that spiritual practice, there is no real solution to the problem. You can elect whoever you like. Elect yourself. You'll be the biggest problem. So it's, it's a question of where we are on the map 
really, at, at the present time. And all I can really say at this point, given that we've spoken so long already on this topic, is that good guidance is essential. And I've also tried to underscore that we should be look carefully for good guidance. Don't always look for the biggest halo. Look for an honest, uh, honest person with personal integrity and genuine spiritual practice that's consistent over a long time. True beauty is really knowing one's position. And so this is relevant to spiritual practice as well. And it's hard to know one's own position. It's hard to know where we're at. That's why when we come in the mall, there's the map and it says, you are here. Hmm? <laughs> so we need some, often we need someone to help us, to tell us, you are here. And so sometimes a genuine teacher won't be as flattering as we might like them to be. Of course, the opposite is also true. They should be more flattering and they are manipulate people by <laughs> telling them they're nothing and they're nobody and, and atma bhatmanyate jagat, it said. One thinks others to be like himself. Oh, teachers should honor the students and see that they have so much to teach me. 